I don't know about you guys, but there's rarely a Sunday um, that I come to, to church with the corporate body of Christ and do not leave encouraged and desiring to worship more. Uh, I hope that's true for you this morning as we come now to the Word of God. Um, Dwayne uh, preached chapter 3 of Nehemiah last week. We're going to be going into chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. If you'd like to get your Bibles ready there. I love this. Oh, there we go. I was going to say the kids know what to do already. I'm glad they don't just do that when I'm preaching. I'm glad they do that every Sunday. Um, (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Uh, last week, Dwayne preached chapter 3, and what we really saw was a beautiful picture of the building of the wall in Jerusalem beginning to commence. Uh, we see so many different names, so many different people, so many different professions all coming together to do this work of building the wall for the glory of God. And it was just a beautiful testament as he drew that out to the implications for us as a church body and each and every different part, every different gift working together for the glory of God. Just a truly beautiful picture. I hope you were encouraged by that. Uh, today, we have a little bit different of a, a text to cover. As the people are engaging in the work of rebuilding the wall, we, we really see here the first signs of opposition to the work of, God, of the glory of God that they're doing in rebuilding the wall. And so we come to this and we see the nations coming against the Jews desiring that this wall not be rebuilt. And we'll see that uh, in a little greater detail as we continue. But we need to understand as we've maintained that the building of this wall, it's not just about laying brick on top of brick. The building of this wall is about the message that the wall preaches. We talked about that in the introduction to the series. The wall preaches two messages, one to the Jews of God's protection and care over them, and a message also to the nations of God's glory. And so we must understand that what the workers are doing is not just laying brick, they're doing a work for the glory of God, and it's at that point that we see the opposition to the work. If you'd like to take out your bulletin insert, I have a little outline for you, uh, as is our custom. Um, The first thing we'll see is the nations coming and mocking the Jews as they're working in rebuilding the wall. The second thing we'll see is the nations plotting against the Jews to stop the work, all all in the name of stopping the work. That's what they want to happen. And as the uh, opposition begins to escalate, we see Nehemiah have to take a very decisive answer uh, and decisive action against the opposition that they face. And so, We're going to draw this back into our sphere. We're going to follow the story, but in in terms of application, there's going to be points in here that we're going to draw out as we seek to do the work of glorying and honoring God, glorifying and honoring God here. We will face opposition as well. And so what is this text seeking to tell us about how we should respond to that opposition? Let's begin by reading the text, and then we'll dive in. Beginning in verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 4. Now when Samballot heard that, they were, that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? 
Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Samballad and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials, And to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Father, I pray that your spirit would be here among us as we look into your word. I pray that you would soften our hearts to submit to what we see here and to be inspired to live in light of the principles that will come from this text. I pray that your Spirit would aid us to this end. I ask this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So we begin then with the mocking of the nations. The nations come and they mock the Jews as they are working on the wall. And we see this in a couple different ways. Sam Ballad and Tobiah are the antagonists in this narrative, in this story. We'll see them come up again and again and again. They are not wanting this wall to be built. And so their first means of opposition is seen in the mocking of these men verbally. And the first thing we see Sam Ballad say is, What are these feeble Jews doing? In saying this, he's mocking the strength of the Jews. He's mocking their ability to accomplish what they set out to accomplish. These weak Jews, what are they doing? Are they going to build it in a day? Are they going to restore it? Will they sacrifice again? Will Will it ever get rebuilt at all? You guys are too weak to accomplish this feat. Not only does he mock the strength of the Jews, he mocks the history of the Jews. He says, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Why do you think he includes that last portion? He's mocking what the Jews had just recently gone through, the exile. This was completely devastating for the Jews, and and yet he's reminding them that their city still lies in ruins. Will you restore these stones after they've been destroyed by the enemy after you were exiled? It would have brought to mind 
the destruction of their city that they had just recently gone through. Will they restore them out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And Tobiah, standing beside him, joins in the jeering. And he says, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. They're building, you guys are building something that's pathetic. It's nothing like what it was before. You might as well stop. It's not even worth it. Sambal and Tobiah are trying to discourage the workers. They're trying to discourage the work that they're doing for the glory of God so that they will stop. And what we need to understand is that these insults that are being hurled at the Jews do not just rest on the ears of the Jews, but they go up to the God of the Jews as well. Ultimately, Sambalad and Tobiah are not mocking the Jews themselves. They're not mocking Nehemiah and the workers. They're mocking the God of the Jews. So in calling the Jews weak, what they're calling is the Jews God weak. He doesn't have the power to restore this wall or to get you guys to do it. In reminding the Jews of their exile, they're heaping shame on the name of God. You were delivered into exile. Your God wasn't powerful enough to stop that. Misunderstanding the purposes of God in the exile. In mocking the efforts to rebuild the wall, they are dishonoring the work that God had prepared for His glory to be accomplished. They're mocking what God is bringing to pass before their very eyes. Now, Nehemiah, he understands this. He understands that they're not chiefly coming against Nehemiah, and they're not chiefly coming against the Jews as they're building the wall, but they're concerned to dishonor the name of God. And that's what leads Nehemiah to pray this prayer of vindication. Now, this prayer is not a prayer of personal vindication, but a prayer of vindication for the name of God. Verse 4, Nehemiah says this, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now when we read that prayer as uh, Christians standing on the other side of Jesus and the cross, I think that we get a little bit nervous right that doesn't sound like something Jesus would say I think that we shouldn't be ashamed of what Nehemiah prays here I don't think that we should apologize for it but I think we should realize that in the time in which Nehemiah prayed this it was good and it was right and we need to understand the context around what Nehemiah is actually praying. And his context is of one of God's covenant with Israel. You see, what Nehemiah is, he, he's praying a curse over these people. He's praying a curse for them. He's, he's praying that they would experience exactly what they've been mocking the Jews about. That they would be plundered in their own land where they're exiles. And in doing this, what Nehemiah is saying effectively is... Lord, treat them justly according to what you've promised. Remember what, what God promised to Abraham? Abraham, those who bless you and your descendants, I will bless. 
those who curse you and your descendants, I will curse. And so Nehemiah is effectively praying in accordance with God's covenant with Israel and with his people, which makes it a good and God-honoring prayer. And he prays that God would reveal his justice by not forgiving Samballot and Tobiah of their sins. His desire is for justice to be served here. But it's very important that we understand, again, that Nehemiah is not praying this prayer for himself. He's praying this prayer for the name of God. That God might vindicate His name. And we see that in the end of verse 5. He says, Do not cover their guilt, nor blot out their sins from among your sight, for they have provoked you, O God, to anger in the presence of the builders. Now as we read that, you might be questioning, because most of you probably have the NIV. It doesn't read that way in the NIV. Um, But most, it actually reads, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. There is some translation difficulty here. I'd like to know what you guys think about it later. Um, But essentially, most scholars recognize that the insult here, the, the object of the insult is not the builders, but is God himself. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And so Nehemiah is praying that God's justice would be done and that his name would be vindicated. So what does this prayer tell us about Nehemiah in this moment? I think it reveals something very important. It reveals his supreme concern for the name of God. It reveals his passion for God to be glorified. And I don't think that this prayer was just for the curse of Samballad and Tobiah as we see in verse 6 moving on. That this verse or this prayer as he prays it out loud does something for the builders as well. Verse 6, So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. could also be said that the people had a heart to work. What gave the people the heart to continue working when they were faced with the mocking of the enemy? It was Nehemiah's prayer. It was Nehemiah's outward, verbal concern for the glory of God that inspired the workers. It reminded them why they were building the wall in the first place. So opposition comes. Nehemiah prays out a passionate prayer for the glory of God. And we see the result is that the people had a mind to work. Now this is the first opposition that we see in the text and they've fended it off very well, Nehemiah and the people, through this prayer for the glory of God. And so the workers are refocused on the reason they're building the wall in the first place, but the opposition is not over yet. We continue on in verses 7. Verse 7, But when Samballot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very 
angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. So here we see as the narrative is unfolding, the opposition begin to escalate. We've moved from simply mocking the nations coming and mocking the Jews verbally to now, as that didn't work, they're plotting against the people to come and cause confusion among them so that the work might stop. And so this is the second point of opposition. It's beginning to escalate. And what does Nehemiah and his people do when this opposition arises? Verse 9, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. You know, it never fails. We've, we've touched on prayer multiple times in the book of Nehemiah so far. We're only in the beginning of chapter 4. And Nehemiah has shown himself to be a man who is committed to prayer. Who is a man who is committed to God in prayer. Realizing that he is dependent upon God to accomplish this feat of building the wall. And so not only does Nehemiah, but he's now inspired his workers to come alongside him and it says that we prayed to our God. And we set a guard against them day and night. And so this is the second opposition. And Nehemiah responds by turning to the Lord in prayer. Now as this continues, as the building continues and this opposition is still present, we begin to see the people become disheartened by the work that they're doing. This work for the glory of God. Verse 10, In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. A bit of a translation there as well if that doesn't look familiar to you in your NIV. But we see that the people become burdened. They become burdened by, I think, three different things as the text lays it out. They become burdened by the work itself. There's too much rubble. Doing a work for the glory of God, working for the glory of God is not an easy thing. It shouldn't be an easy thing. And the workers realize this. There's too much rubble. At this point, they're halfway through building the wall. Perhaps their stamina and their morale is beginning to give out as it was a pretty big wall. They're halfway done and they feel burdened by the work. Not only that, we see that uh, the opposition continue to escalate. Before Tobiah and Samballot were just seeking to confuse the Jews, now it's said that they want to come and kill the Jews. And we will come and they won't see us coming and we will kill them and we will stop the work. The work is heavy. It's too much for us. There's people coming against us wanting to kill us and stop the work. But not only that, I'm following the translation of the ESV. And Jews from around them came and said, Come off the wall. 
quit this work that you're doing. It's too dangerous. Probably the families of these people came and were discouraging the Jews from continuing their mission. So three things lead to this statement. It's too much. This burden is being placed on our back and it's too much for us to bear. And God understands that and He uses these three burdens to lead them to a very crucial understanding in this work that God is having them do. Verse 10, all of this leads them to this understanding. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. This isn't a plea for more manpower. This isn't a plea for... We need more people. That's all we need. We just need more people. That is not what this is a plea for. This is a plea for, that, for God to act on behalf of His people. This is the Jews understanding that this work is too big for any people to do. We need our God. And so God uses these burdens and these events to show the Jews their need for Him in this work of glorifying His name by building the wall. So here we're left with a burdened people who understand that they can't build the wall by themselves. We have the enemy coming down on them and, and assumingly, seemingly by the text, preparing an attack against them. The morale of the people is low. And so we're left to ask, what will the people do? Will they give in? Will they give up? Will they continue the work? Nehemiah, as a good leader, understands the pressure in this moment. He understands how important this moment is. And so he rises up and decisively acts against the opposition of the enemy and the depleted morale of the people. In verse 13, he acts against the enemy and he says this, assuming that the, the armies of the nations are coming and preparing an attack against them, so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I station the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. So Nehemiah takes action and he prepares the people to defend the city, placing them, understanding where the weakest points in the wall were, that that is where the enemy would attack. And so he places the people in those areas and prepares them to defend the city. And in verse 14, Nehemiah stands up and I think what he actually does here is, is a bit of a battle cry for the people to spur on courage in their hearts to defend the city. And when I first uh, read through this text, my mind kind of wandered to uh, Braveheart actually. And uh, I don't know, how many of you guys have seen that? I mean, don't be afraid to admit it. It's kind of like a historical movie. Um, so William Wallace is, they're getting ready, the Scots are getting ready to fight the English, right? And, and they're, they're a whole giant field apart. And William Wallace is trying to get his, give his men courage as they're getting ready to go into battle. And the, they don't want to go into battle. They're like, we want to go home. We don't want to be here. A lack of willingness to fight and a, and a depleted morale, they're going to kill us. We'd rather run and live. And William Wallace riding around on his horse with his face painted 
Mel Gibson playing the part with his wavy long hair. He's riding around and he is just giving this speech, this battle cry to go into war. And he ends with this phrase, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. And it was at that point that the people were like, okay, I can fight for this. And then they rise up and they go into war. I think what Nehemiah is doing here is very similar. Verse 14, I think, is Nehemiah's battle cry to give the people courage to defend the city. And I think that Nehemiah's battle cry, the content of it is very significant. Verse 14, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Speaking of the enemy. Do not be afraid of them. He rises up and he surveys the people. And I I think that at this point, he sees fear in their eyes. They've been working on this wall tirelessly for a very long time to build it to half its height. Their strength is low. It's likely that they're outmanned. It's likely that they don't have sufficient weapons for fighting. At least not as powerful as the enemy has. There was plenty of reason for the people to be afraid. And yet Nehemiah stands up and says, do not be afraid of them. Now I think if Nehemiah were to leave his battle cry there, the people probably would have turned around and said, we got plenty of reason to be afraid. I'm getting out of here. But Nehemiah proceeds to tell them why they should not be afraid. And this is the meat of the battle cry. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And so what Nehemiah does here in his battle cry is he roots their courage in the character of their God. Not in their own strength or in their own ability or their own preparedness. But he says, remember the Lord. And he points out two characteristics of God which would spur them on to go into battle. He says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. In saying that God is great, it would have returned the hearers, uh, the men who are getting ready to battle, it would have returned their minds to the wars gone by that the Lord had conquered the enemies for His people. It would have made them understand who they are fighting under. They're fighting under a great God who is powerful. But not only this, he says that God is awesome. Remember that God is awesome. And this term awesome, what it really means is to invoke fear, which is very interesting. Nehemiah says, do not be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is awesome. Remember the Lord who is the only one who is worthy to be feared. Fear God, not man. And so defend the city and this work of the glory of God that you're doing. Now this reflection on the God of the Jews would have been the first thing to motivate them to fight. If we quit, the wall doesn't go up and we know what that means. 
It means that God continues to be mocked. His name continues to be defamed and that's not what we want. Remember, you're fighting under a powerful God and fear Him more than you fear your enemies and fight. But Nehemiah then engages the men's hearts as it's likely that their families were standing close by them. And I'll read it in whole. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah now appeals to the families of these men, calling them to sacrificially fight for those that they love, which comes under the bounds of the glory of God. It's not distinct from it. And so I'm going to leave you on a bit of a cliffhanger here. That's where I'm stopping for the morning. What's going to happen, right? Well, you have to come back next week and find out, I guess, or just read the next verse. I think some of you might be asking yourself right now, all right, Kelsey, you've got to bring this thing home because uh, you've said a lot of words that make me feel really uncomfortable. You've said war. You've said battle. You've said fight. You've said braveheart. And... You know you're preaching in a Mennonite church, right? I do. I do realize that. So what are these principles as we see the opposition? What are these principles that we can grab for our own lives? Well, the first thing that we need to realize is that whether we like it or not, as Christians, we are in a war. Well, it looks a little bit different than it did at this present time in the life of Israel. Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. As Christians, we are in a war. We are called to battle. Similarly, as the people, as Nehemiah was calling the people. You know, so we have a work to do of glorifying God by living in obedience to His Word. It doesn't necessarily look like building a giant wall around our city, but we have a work to do. We're called to live in obedience to God's Word, and we have an enemy that does not want that to happen. And so we have a war. I want to draw from the passage five points of the way that Nehemiah and his people responded to opposition. Because if we're doing a work for the glory of God, we'll face opposition. And we need to know how to respond to it. So when spiritual opposition arises through Satan's attacks in our own sinful nature, you must, number one, have a passion for the glory of God. Nehemiah's prayer. If you do not have a passion for the glory of God, when opposition comes against you, you will be consumed. You have to, in that moment, and even when you're not in a moment of opposition, continually refresh yourself on why you live the life you live. You live it for the glory of God. We must have a passion for God's glory. Number two, we must have a dependence upon God through prayer. Time and time again, twice in this text, we see Nehemiah and his men turn to God in prayer, seeking protection 
understanding that they are dependent upon God. When opposition arises, we must be dependent upon God in prayer in order to sustain the attacks of the enemy. Number three, you must acknowledge your complete indebtedness to the grace of God to accomplish what He has called you to do. The work is hard. You can't do it on your own. It's supposed to be that way. Because when you rely on God to do the work, it glorifies God and not you. And this is exactly what happened. By ourselves, we can't do it. They understood their complete indebtedness to the grace of God to do what He called them to do. Number four, we must remember the God who is great and awesome. We must remember who we're fighting under and that He is powerful. And we must fear Him more than we fear our enemy. Whatever form the enemy takes. And number five, we must be willing to fight for the glory of God. Nehemiah, through his battle cry, encouraged the people to be willing to fight for the glory of God. Are we willing to engage in that fight? Are you willing to fight against your sinful nature by laying aside the desires of the flesh and pursuing the fruit of the Spirit? Are you willing to fight against your pride and selfishness through selflessly serving those around you? Are you willing to fight against the lust in your heart and your mind through pursuing purity of heart and mind? Are you willing to fight the kingdom of darkness through the spread of the Gospel? Spouses, are you willing to fight for your marriages and for your children? Are you willing to lay aside your selfishness and sacrificially serve your spouse? Are you willing to fight your apathy in training your children in the Lord? It gets hard. It's a daily thing. And the burden becomes heavy, forcing you to understand that you need God to do it. Are you willing to fight your apathy? Are you willing to fight for the salvation of your children and the spiritual growth of your spouses through prayer? I would be remiss if I didn't bring this out of the passage, but when Nehemiah was standing up giving this battle cry to the people, the people who were looking him in the eyes were men who were prepared to fight. Men, this battle in our homes starts with us. We must be the ones to lead the battle. In order to glorify God in the work He has for us to do in the midst of opposition, we must have a passion for God's glory. We must be dependent upon God in prayer. We must acknowledge our need for God's grace to do what He has called us to do. We must remember our great and awesome God. And we must be willing to fight for His glory. Pray with me.
Father, give us a passion for your glory. Give us an unsettledness in our spirit that is willing to rise up and fight what is earthly in us. I pray that your spirit would move in our hearts in this way and that we would take practical steps to fighting against the forces of evil and against our own sinful nature. Strengthen us and empower us through this text to do what you have called us to do. All for your glory. Amen. If, if the Spirit has moved you to action this morning, if you feel like you want to engage in this fight and perhaps you've just become apathetic in it, or maybe you've never begun to fight this war, I would really love the opportunity just to be able to talk to you, be able to pray with you, be able to fight with you, to walk with you, or to connect you with somebody who would be willing to do that. If that's you this morning, come talk to me after the service.